Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, the J10 Initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Father John here with my uh, illustrious three companions. We got the whole crew. We got the whole crew. Full squad. Father Sean, Father Mike. Father, or almost Father Jacob. I said That's it. me. It's got a nice ring to a Deacon Jacob for another. <laughs> almost Father Jacob. I'm going to go by that almost my whole father. life. Almost Ten more father. months. We are uh, up at the uh, Companions Summer Conference. This is the 16th year, Michael Rapp, that we've done this. Can what? you believe that? 16 years. Of conferencing? Yeah. So wow. Every, where, where was the first one? Uh, we went to St. John's University yeah. with the uh, Minnesota guys, and you showed up with a mohawk. I, I think I tried to swim a lake yeah there's a cool chapel out there oh it's beautiful yeah that's right that's the first first conference do you remember what the topic was i have no idea yeah, yeah i no. don't either that was a long time wasn't ago. that more of a boot camp for you guys no this is before the boot camp this is our first experience of the companions we uh went up um and the four so larkin rap book and i went up and uh wanted to kind of get a sense for who these guys were and what's this thing about and yeah, Rap uh, got off the airplane with a mohawk, and uh, it was did. a bit of a test, uh, which they passed. I uh, can't remember if I cut it for the test. It definitely functioned as a test. Yeah, it was, I wanted to know how comfortable they were with, um, I don't know, curveballs. Yeah. And uh, they were, and I just like, I, I worry about a cult that's really, um, I don't know, too tight yeah. and polished. And this cult was not. That's true. They were, they were more <laughs> casual and hospitable and inviting and fun. Exactly. It was the kind of cult we wanted to be a part That's of. That's it. Yeah. So uh, we are in a, an amazing spot right now just to just kind of describe the location. This is kind of fun. You know, I was remembering about a year ago, um, Father Mike and uh, at the time, Jacob Machado, now, now Deacon Jacob, were on the Cairo Trail. Uh, Father Sean was on uh, the week before, but we did a little was recording. That this week? This week, a year ago? Uh, it was last week, yeah, last week. mid-July. Oh. Um, but it wasn't too long ago, about a year ago. And we are in a uh, uh, another just beautiful spot here. So we're um, about 45 minutes outside of Pagosa Springs, Colorado, which is um, was made famous by Oprah, apparently, because the it? hot springs, the deepest hot springs in the country oh, wow. uh, are here. And we're out at this ranch, uh, Sobria Springs, and it's about 9.30 at night, and we're looking out over the mountains, and in, in the far distance to the side of the valley is this huge old barn, uh, which has kind of been our, which they've renovated and is actually pretty amazing. And that has been the center of our conference, and we're glamping. Uh, would you say it's the first time glamping, Father Sean? Uh, I don't know if this is my first time, but it's definitely glamping, glamping. We have these, like, huge canvas tents with mosquito nets on the outside, and then, like, Really big beds. I'm in like a full size bed <laughs> oh, okay. that has sheets and everything. I was wondering what what makes for glamping, but you're right. The sheets, the sheets, the, the sheets. pillows, the the full size bed, the breakfast. So yeah. So oh the, yeah, breakfast is served. So we have the uh, um. So we have a series of these tents. We're I don't know. We're like 23 guys, 22, 23 guys out here. Yep. Uh, everybody gets a bed, and uh, but we're. We're we're doing it out on the ranch and uh, it's fun. Enjoying the, cows, themselves. the cows go crazy about sunrise and they they kind of they kind of wake you up. <laughs> yeah, we're we're praying mass yesterday and I don't know what the sounds were. Um, they were 
One was giving birth. <laughs> yeah, it was very strange. It's the, calfing season. Yeah, apparently. It's got to be 100 cows. Not a strange. Cows lowing. Not a, I, I wondered what that was in Away in a Manger. Now you not, know. Now I know. It's not yeah. a peaceful Cows sound. are lowing. That'll change your Ignatian uh, meditation. <laughs> oh, boy. On the nativity. Work, it is a working cattle ranch. That is, that yeah, it's true. So I feel kind of like <laughs> around a campfire. I'm sitting in a very, like, uh, unstable <laughs> little uh <laughs> Camping sure. piece here. Yeah, I'm sorry. You got, so if you I got fall sh- over and you hear a screech, the uh, uh, the sounds of the cows were strange, but not as strange as the sounds in the volleyball game that we just finished. <laughs> yeah. So we or, or, the, or the smells, the smells. <laughs> yeah. So it's old guys versus young guys has been the last few years of volleyball, and it's a great it's a great game. And we got some guys who are very surprisingly uh, excellent. Just some some skilled guys and. Uh, it's been fun. There was a there was a very controversial call that ended the last game. Uh, it so wasn't controversial at all. We needed to take a moment, uh, you know, to kind of recollect ourselves uh, and uh, come back at it. So, <laughs> I wasn't there to adjudicate. I had I heard though some of the controversy, and I side with the old guys. We'll uh, be back out tomorrow, Don't and there will be more controversy, just like the last two nights. That's right. So, so summer conference. The it's a week every summer. Um, and uh, I think we've recorded before together, so this isn't the first time that we've done it. But it, it's it's really uh, our our most extended time of the year together, and um, it's just a it's a great joy. Um, Jacob, Sean, you guys have uh, a couple under your belt now, or is this your first one? Like well, it's weird. I didn't make the one in Evergreen. I did boot camp last year, which substituted, and then we did the well, we did the boot camp, and then we did the uh, the pilgrimage in October. That's which I right. guess was the actual substitution. Right. So if you count all of those, this is three. Okay. If those don't count, this is the first. All right. I say yeah. they count. <laughs> My first summer conference actually was when we went to Min- um, South Dakota. Oh, that's right. To meet the Minnesota guys. Um, I think the year before that, I was in Mexico. Um, so that's probably what you were referencing, Deacon Jake. And then after that, we went to, we had that one in Vail, which was great, up in Edwards. Um I don't know. I lose track. So I don't know if this is like three or maybe four. Yeah, maybe even more than that. Um, yeah. So um, we are. Uh, so the, the it's just a great week together. A lot of time uh, biking, hiking, fishing. Guys, guys are golfing today. Because um, the pillars, right? Common life, common <laughs> prayer, and common study. You can do it. You can well, do no, it. No, no. I was going to get to common study at last. But <laughs> <laughs> There's only but, four. But the common study is kind of the um, common study, common life. It's kind of the, the folks here, right? It is. And so, I yeah. mean, we kind of do all four, but it's it's a conference. It's not a retreat. It's a conference. So there's right. the academic element. Right. So we spend the mornings uh, in in conversation, and uh, we have a speaker every year. And uh, this year, Dr. Larry Chapp. Um, Who is wh- supposed to be on the podcast, as we announced multiple know, times. So this is a conversation without Larry Chapp. That's About how I think we'll call it. Yeah, exactly. So he wrote a uh, a book called The Confessions of a Catholic Worker: Our Moment of Christian Witness, and we've been uh, zooming him in uh, the last two days, and he'll he'll continue with us tomorrow. Absolutely fantastic stuff, and, and our our plan today is to unpack that. Uh, but before we do that, I I just want to hand it over to Father Mike here for a second because he's off of uh, um, a pretty amazing experience. Oh yeah, he did a just we mentioned this earlier in the summer, but. He is just glowing with wow. holiness because he just finished uh, his second 30-day silent retreat. I think that's the greasy face and hair of not having washed. <laughs> the, the, little fake, the little fake candles <laughs> off the table reflecting. Well, thank you guys for prayers, and thank you everybody out there for prayers. Um, it was powerful. It was uh, a beautiful time. It's not easy to do 
um, silence for 30 days and five hours of meditation. And um, that can get, I mean, for anybody out there who's praying regularly and praying in quiet meditation for an hour, contemplating some aspect of the life of Christ or um, our own relationship with God, that's um, that's an experience that can sometimes be totally distracted and boring or um, frustrated and uh, and then other times absolutely delightful uh, making space for for God and to God for for Christ to speak in uh, very particular ways um, Saint Ignatius this was the exercise of Saint Ignatius at Loyola he focuses all around um, the primary like the first, principle and foundation is that everyone is made to praise reverence and serve the lord and that um to to lay the foundation you have to be detached from um from anything any disordered attachments that can um draw you to sort of taking your own road instead of the road that christ is inviting you on and the holy spirit leading so um yeah a lot of it was just kind of decluttering the the body the mind the the soul and uh, making the space for God to speak in and create that order and make his will known. A lot of my retreat was just, um, I had anticipated bringing uh, 20 years of experience as my last um, time doing the exercises and kind of processing things. And it wasn't that. It turned out to be a lot of God saying, okay, you can just, just set that aside and spend time with me. Let's just hang. Um, I want to, you know, give you this, give you this space to reconnect. And, and that was delightful. You know, God is love and, um, there was so much peace and joy. Um, I don't know how much I want to share about the specific graces that'll probably come out along the way. Um, maybe one very simple one was, um, that I was a kid when you meditate, um, at some point on the, the hidden life of Jesus and kind of what's um, it's, it's a very creative kind of point where you're trying to let the Lord lead and then your imagination on what was Jesus's life like when he was um, before his ministry and there was um, water skiing on the sea of Galilee. Oh yeah. I don't know if, I mean, sailboats can go fast enough. I, I presume. Um, hike, hike in the mountains and ski in Mount, uh, Mount Hermon up north. And, um, and then we would train. I, I don't know exactly how that came in, but we would train. We would run and do like the military exercises with the Roman soldiers nearby. And I don't, there was a lot of like throwing spears and stuff like that. I never, never expected Jesus to be doing his running and training with these, uh, these soldiers or really anybody I love but it. that um, meditation i was playing catch fit. i was playing baseball catch, yeah. catch in the backyard of mary and joseph's house with jesus see yeah it's fun it's fun to kind of speculate about that and there was singing singing songs and psalms with um our lady and joseph and jesus in their house in nazareth one of which i was reminded of during the volleyball game was <laughs> foo fighters Everlong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was one of their favorites. Happened to be one of mine. <laughs> well, lest, lest you wonder what kind of uh, cannabis Mike and Jacob were using on these retreats, uh, the Ignatian prayer is um, really emphasizes the use of the imagination, and it 
it's really something that God uses, and uh, it's beautiful to hear. You have a very interesting and creative imagination, so I'm sure your prayer is far more uh, interesting. My question, I guess, is if you're skiing Mount Tabor, it, was Jesus snowboarding again, like that dream, <laughs> dream you had no. years ago? Okay, no. good, because that was, that was no, kind of scandalous. Yeah. yeah. But he, yeah, he had some swag. He kind of had like the same bump form as Larkin. A lot of <laughs> oh. hips. A lot of hips on the. A lot of hips on the bumps. Working those 80s style. Yeah. Well, it's cool. Pr- yeah, it was real profound. There was, um, you you work through the whole life of Christ. You work through creation and the fall and um, kind of starting with an assessment of who I am in light of you know God's loving creation and then. Uh, the fall of humanity, and there's some kind of introspection during that time, and then begin to work through the life of Christ into his passion and resurrection, and then sort of, well, there's a beautiful contemplation for the attainment of divine love that uh, kind of rounds it out, sends you back out into the world, and um, with the encouragement of doing daily examines to revisit some of the graces there. I don't know, have we talked about the, the meditation to... Uh, for divine love? Uh, I think we have. I think we probably have. The meditation on the resurrection? No, right at the end of it, yeah. The last one. No, we can do, well, yeah, we can do that down the line, too. Yeah, sounds good. But well, powerful. I, I, thank, I, you it, for, thank you for all the prayers, and um, I know that it will bear a lot of fruit in my priestly life and in the um, association of the companions. And um, just as a Christian, it's nice to reconnect, feel that Holy Spirit, and that life. I came that you might have life, and I hope that what what does Jesus say? I'm um, that I want to sh- I want I want them to have the joy that I have in you, Father, and that their joy might be complete. I felt some of that beautiful taste of that heaven's John fifteen, I believe, right? Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do, doing the uh, exercises. Everybody does them uh, first year in seminary in Denver in the spirituality year, uh, but Mike is the first guy to do it as a priest uh, a second time, and it's just a very generous thing to do and it sounds like the lord really blessed you so yeah so well done um and i encourage yeah if there's priests out there and uh you get a chance you know pray ask the lord does he if uh if he wants you to do that it's yeah but it was a real gift came out of nowhere for me and i just suggest it to anybody out there and it's, it's, it's easy to say well if i had a month i would do my vacay thing and this is you know very worthwhile that's great that's great well well done all right so gents um our plan today or tonight as we should say it's it's already pretty late um yeah we're just going to kind of unpack um some initial thoughts and perceptions on uh larry chap's book the confessions of a catholic worker um so i'll kind of just get us started a little bit here um I'm sure a number of listeners know uh, Larry Chapp is is becoming one of the foremost um, kind of Catholic figures in the United States um, through his blog and podcast, um, which is called Gaudium at Spes 22. Uh, Larry actually reached out to our podcast. I was shocked. Tim Danaher forwarded me an email from him to us, um, really thanking us for what we were doing. Cool. And we had referenced him in a podcast about a year and a half ago. And I, th- I don't know who I, which of you I was with. Um, but there was kind of a uh, kind of throwaway comment about we should get this guy to do a summer conference, and then he wrote and said, "I love what you guys are doing, um, and would love to do a conference." And wow. so that's what occasioned this was awesome. the podcast. And so I was just 
blown away because uh, Larry is just an amazing intellectual. Um, but I think what we've found the last few days is just he's just a delightful human. You know, totally. like he's just so he's... free and himself, and he's blunt and he's brilliant, but he's deeply like charitable because um, he's got some snark and some sarcasm. But it's just like it's the kind that you just love. I mean, he's just had us just rolling uh, and laughter sometimes. Um, so. Before we get into the book, I just want to hear just like initial thoughts from you guys on um, just the experience of of interacting with him and hearing him speak the last few days. I uh, for <laughs> Larry, if you're listening to this, love the book, uh, but I was also really glad to hear that you said um, that you thought the book was a flaming pile of trash <laughs> and <laughs> and right. that uh, you, nobody was going to publish this, and then your publisher came in and said because uh, reading it, it was it was it's been very powerful to read, um, but getting it from you, uh, kind of with the, the you're getting it from, I'm, I'm talking to Larry now, not the audience, um, but hearing from Larry, uh, the stories, um, that, that kind of, kind of situate what he talks about in the book, um, and kind of his synthesis of the book himself, because, um, the book itself is a wonderful read. It, it reads pretty easily, but I do think could have been maybe a little tighter. And so having him come in and just say exactly what he means, uh, has been uh, really impressive because he's got such a pulse on culture as is within the church, outside the church, but it doesn't stop there. Because I think one of the things we can do at the podcast level, at the association level, we can just circle around diagnosis and stay at diagnosis. Um, but, you know, Larry was a man who found this Ernst Fall, which we'll talk about, moment of choice. And he said, I'm going to actually go start a, a Catholic workers farm. He's been there 10 years now. Yep, 10 years. And so so his, his moment of like, I'm going to actually live what I've been professing belief and teaching. Um, and then to express that in a very human, non-judgmental, non-this-is-the-only-way, but to talk about, okay, how do I personally respond to the diagnosis helps us then discuss how are we going to personally respond to the diagnosis and not just stay at the diagnosis level. Um, and, and he does that kind of with the confession element of the book. So I've really enjoyed that, uh, as opposed to so often we just sit around saying, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Uh, I, I totally agree. And, and what I loved is he started by saying this book is the fruit of 20 years of teaching undergraduates at DeSales university. So Larry Chap uh, did his doctorate in the, I believe in the early nineties and Fordham under, under the late great, Ed Oaks, as he would say. Um, <laughs> and uh, he's tag teamed with uh, this guy named Rodney Hauser, who's kind of his Sancho Panza, uh, you could say. And these two were just just dynamite together uh, at the university. Uh, uh, Hauser's still there. Hauser did his doctorate under Gronsky at Marquette. So I can't remember of, what he said. What was his specialty? Hauser's? Uh, Hauser did it on Both Star also, okay. I believe. Yeah, okay. yeah, I believe. Uh, and they, they co-authored it a book that Gronsky did a chapter in, um, mm -hmm. Gronsky, Father Gronsky is our spiritual father and the great Jesuit who passed several years ago. Uh, how Balthazar changed my mind was a book that they, 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 they edited and, uh, Gronsky had a, had a piece in that. So, uh, so anyways, that's, that's Larry Chap. 20 years as a, as a professor had tenure and then he left, uh, out of his, uh, great love and conviction that the, the vision of Dorothy Day and Peter Marin, um, and the founding of the Catholic Worker uh, was something that he needed to do with his wife. And um, so they founded this uh, Catholic Worker farm, and they've been doing that for 10 years. And then several years ago, he started kind of stepping back into the public square and uh, 
with his uh, blog and podcast, and he's been crushing it since. But uh, so, anyways, just to say that a little bit about who he is. But uh, Mike, Sean, yeah, first impressions. Well, I was surprised to hear that he needs to tighten up his book. I think he's got a new editor in Deacon Jacob Machado. Uh, yeah, that was bold, Deacon. <laughs> bold. Yeah, yeah, getting, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm, the we're out in the mountains. Out there. I'm, a, I'm a beer in. We're getting bold. <laughs> Wait until we're half an hour into this. Well, uh, yeah, what a delightful guy. He, um, he speaks with an eloquence that tells of years and years of teaching and of um, intellectual engagement, reading, um, writing, and and then with an incredible wit. You know, you ask him a question, he's on it. He um, can just riff in a way that is, it's like intimidating. You know, I want to be like that. And um, you just, the, certain people have certain talents and skills, and this guy's putting them to great use. He, um, yeah, he's fun. He's funny. He has a, a certain humility. You know, this book is called Confessions, and um, he's been vulnerable in just sharing his life. I mean, vulnerable makes it sound like it's really, you know, dangerous or something, but just uh, personal. Yeah, with our with our crew, and I appreciate that. The confessions at in the in the intro or the first chapter, um, he gives his biography of how he kind of walked through an experience of of uh, engaging intellectually with what the world has um what he had been offered through catechesis as a kid and then um learning the modern philosophies and an experience in seminary with scholastic theology and then looking at resource mont theology and it, it was a story that i certainly shared and um, appreciated it just really resonated with my own experience of um, approaching uh, Christ and God as the truth as a kind of primary category I'm, I'm like a very heady type and could tell that I had this kindred spirit in Dr. Chap mm. and um, have gone through some of the same excitement and disillusionment with various um, models of thought and worldviews and so it, it kind of like he, he led through this journey that he had been through and i find myself in a similar place of where my mind my soul my heart is longing to be fed and um wanting to engage with the mystery of christ and and you see that in a lot of the ways that we've uh, that we talk on the podcast and our own intellectual interests and um, and then, like as an academic, um, a lot of I'm kind of in at a point where I'm I've I've got a lot of um, of things that I've taken in and I've learned, and then I'm trying to situate exactly where I want to go. You know, what are what are the priorities and the ways that I think I can serve the church um, best as an intellectual and I think he's uh, reading his book and listening to him even thus far has been um, an experience of yes there's some clarity around what's going to be the most helpful to the church and to the world and um, so I've found yeah just the first impressions to be um, delightful and there to be a, a kind of I mean we use something like an uncle or like a family uncle figure. larry as guys were calling yeah. him today yeah and there's there's something to that just like um 
knowing that this, uh, our hearts are sort of connected, our minds are connecting. And um, so just looking forward to kind of where he's going to go. I think I read his book and uh, was delighted by that. There's so much um, that provokes thought from it. And um, I yeah, look forward to this discussion. And then we have a couple more days of uh, talking to Dr. Chap and mm-hmm. among our community. Our, our discussion on this conference are both um, engaged with his his book and his own work and his thought, and then also trying to apply those to our own life as an association of priests. And um, that's been an interesting project in itself of um, how can these things relate um, to the practicals of uh, yeah. of our life. So. Thank you, Doctor Chap. Look, looking forward to more, man. Yeah, I think that. Um, and he's punk. He, that's what I was just <laughs> gonna say. Punk. That's what I was gonna say. He's a kindred spirit. He's punk. Yeah, he's he's punk. And <sighs> totally. I totally. There's a John moment. John had told me you're gonna like this guy, <laughs> and that could mean a million things. <laughs> you know, I don't know what that's gonna. You know, what to expect. But this guy has got a real punk rock spirit. Of, um, I'm I'm not just gonna you know be a sheep and follow along with what the world is doing and what the you know, everybody else thinks is is best, but I'm gonna pioneer with a farm in one case, but even as an intellectual. You know? There's yeah. a moment today where uh, Father Mike came up with a question, and he was almost almost apologetic because he was gonna be a little disruptive, a little subversive with his uh, turn. And Doctor Chap, afterwards, was just like, I love that question. Thank you for asking that. That really don't throw tomatoes at me. <laughs> Father Mike started his question. Uh, I would say like it's been very very good. He's he's very captivating. He's a very good speaker. Um, to the points made earlier, like he he's very snarky. Uh, he's very sarcastic, um, even in his book, but especially in the conference. Um, I would say for the book and the conference, like it's giving me language to things that I've been wrestling with for the last couple of years in the parish that now I'm able to articulate in kind of a, a new and better way, uh, specifically with like progressivism versus traditionalism. What's the way forward? Uh, what he argues is the racehorse Mont, uh, thinking with the church, with the racehorse Mont thinkers, which we'll get to here in a second. Um, in anthropology with, with, uh, you, Father John, we read, uh, what is it? Atheistic humanism by De Lubach. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, um, that to me is like very similar to what chap is trying to, to say, but that was written what 50 years ago and giving this language of the culture is no longer atheistic, but anti-theistic. Right. As uh, De Lubach would say, but chap is saying uh, the way that culture is now set up uh, makes a nullification nullifies our response to God. It makes it like impossible to even choose uh, because of the way that, uh, society functions and runs. Uh, it's no longer just like God, people don't believe in God. It's that people don't, uh, have the option to even be open to the possibility that God exists, uh, which is all the more tragic. Right. And so he's giving us this language to kind of talk about the tragedy of the culture, this crisis that we find ourselves in. How do we, how do we go forward? How do we really evangelize uh, the culture when we find ourselves in that place? I'd like to say too, um, I love the the context of confessions, a confession of obviously calling to confession of St. Augustine. There's a dialogue with a confession. There's a vulnerability and a personality, which I think why the, the, the conference is so powerful because you're dialoguing with. And so it's an overflow from the book, which is already a dialogue. So for me, who's, you know, a plucky, 
pseudo intellectual who throws hurls my uh, critiques. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, man, sorry to call you out. <laughs> no, it's right and just um, to to see Doctor Chap speak with us. We talked to you know, Uncle Larry. What I see is somebody who's who's along the road before us, who's sharing his experience because I think a lot of times myself others we get caught in I need to be expert perfect now and he said this came out of 20 years of teaching and then having this moment of just grace where he says I need to make a choice to do something different Um, I'm convicted and I, I can accept or reject that conviction and he accepted it and moved we are all living within a journey and so I want to I want to know all of the resource month thinkers now. I want to know all of Thomas now. I want to have a perfect uh, knowledge, a perfect system that I can just engage everything. But he's an expression as a confession of his life, of his experience as an academic, as a Catholic, as a man, as a husband. Um, I think there's something profound in our immediacy world that wants everything solved now to actually enter into a dialogue that is a lifetime. I, I think that's a great um, point. I'd like to just go on that for a second uh, without going down a rabbit hole because this is not <laughs> the point of our, our topic, but the fact that he called it a, a confession. I, I just reread St. Augustine's Confessions um, on retreat. I hadn't read it in 20 years, um, and I was deeply moved by it, and it really paired well with the the central. I did an eight-day silent retreat in June, and it, it paired with the, the basic idea and uh, Mike, this is something we really should podcast on because I have a million questions for you on it. But the Hebrew word todah means is often t- translated as thanksgiving uh, or praise, but it also means confession. Mm. And so when, when a Christian like Chap uh, makes a confession or St. Augustine makes a confession, uh, it's an act of praise and it's an act mm. of thanksgiving. And I really felt that in the book, that, that he is he's... He is speaking of the living God in in Jesus Christ, um, and he's critiquing the culture, and he's kind of synthesizing massive, massive kind of strokes here. Um, but also, he's just he's just giving praise to God that somehow a kid who grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, in a beige Catholicism, the post conciliar world, um, was able to kind of find his way through the, the messiness of life, um, and and now be a voice that's speaking to you know, 23 priests here who are, uh, who are, who are literally going to go on Sunday and speak to 10,000 people. I mean, you think about the reach that's just in that room that he's speaking to and and how edified, uh, that is. And so I just, I, I I wanted to kind of hit on that again of that, that notion of confession is, Mm -hmm. um, it's not just kind of a catchy title, like, but that's, that's really what this is. And we tend to, or it's easy to see that as like going into a box and saying your bad stuff. Right. And confessions, yeah, has this brighter, this broader witness. You know, here's what God has done for me. And uh, Adrian von Speyer has a great book on called Confession that I'd highly recommend. But that's a total side note. <laughs> so, anyways, to the book for a second here. Um, and again, this is just a very introductory prelude to. Uh, you should just read it. Um, you know, but we're just kind of kind of scratching the surface here because there's so much that we can go into. But um, the book really centers around this this notion of Ernstfall, this German word that that Jacob referenced earlier, um, which means a, a kind of a decisional moment within crisis. And so, what Chap is proposing, and he's building on Balthazar, who wrote a book in the 1960s called, which is in English called, "The Moment of Christian Witness," uh, but is Ernstfall in the in the German, 
which is the word that kind of encapsulates that, the, the, the critical moment of decision. Uh, and really what he's situating is that we are in a crisis uh, as, as Western civilization. Um, it's a crisis of the de-Christianization of the world that's happening. Um, and the good of that is that it's forcing the Christian hand to say, we can't just be culturally Catholic anymore. You have to decide, yes or no, for Jesus Christ. And again, he's building on Balthazar and Ratzinger and Delubach and these other uh, resource mon thinkers who who are really developing this idea. Um, but that's the I, I really took that as the kind of fundamental thing that he's presenting for us. So I think before going into kind of the basic structure and some of the more specific details, Ernst Fall is the key. And and curious, any takeaways you guys have on that? Well, I got a lot I could I talk about, and I. I think it would be more of a dialogue, kind of asking about how that functions. Um, so I don't want to sidetrack that. I might I kind of bring that in when it, you know, comes up naturally. Because I, I have a question of how that, yeah, how this idea of I need to make a decision that defines my life as Christian, um, how that is, how that relates to baptism. One, because I think in like Augustine's time. Baptism was like a really serious kind of election. It was a change of life. It was that uh, decision that now marks me on a path that's um, it's totally different. And a kind of response to the, um, the, the call, some, some, something of a crisis. That, that God has come along and said, your life is, um, has the, the potential of changing dramatically. Are you going to take that? And, um, and then... That becoming a concept that's like uh, the, what do they call that? The fundamental option of, um, that can be misunderstood as like the Christian life is just one moment of, I, I take Jesus Christ as my savior and then it being rather undefined and amorphous after that. And, um, this having some sort of connotation of an ongoing decision, like a daily something and, um, a response so, like, the relationship between those two concepts of, is this primarily recognizing the crisis in the world, the crisis in the church, and the crisis that's presented to me, and setting a trajectory that cannot be, you can't go back on, or is this meant to be a, a description of a kind of um, per, perpetual decision that comes throughout life? I have a feeling that it's it's kind of both, but I don't know if he has, you know, a primary direction that he's he's pointed to Does that I, mean, I don't, I don't want to like no i, I, I sidetrack i don't think that's, that's a sidetrack and I, I think that's that's central to the book and i think if he was sitting here talking to us he would say that that's right on is that um that the cultural cir- circumstances that we're facing which is what really the first half of the book is presenting is to say um it's necessitating the decision for for or against christ in a new way that's mm-hmm. the but the the decision itself as you're saying is is an ongoing process. It, it really is metanoia. It's, mm-hmm. it's conversion in the Christian life. We, we get, wake up tomorrow morning, and somebody mentioned this in our conference today about just like, what am I, am I choosing Christ today with my life? And, and you know, I look at the, the four of us sitting on the porch of this tent under, under starlight, which is actually amazing. To be able to do a podcast under the stars is magnificent. Um, but I know your stories, and, and you know mine, and, and we all hit these these kind of Ernst fall moments. Some of them were more immediate uh, and kind of dramatic. Others were more kind of gradual, but 
but ultimately what he's saying is to your point mike of like we have to choose christ we can't we can't just float in the kind of hot tub of c- cultural catholicism mm-hmm. anymore you know so right and it's not a spectator sport right you don't just sit on the sidelines looking at catholicism it's like no you have to be in it you have to make this decision and when this decision comes to it will you follow christ or will you not and to not decide is to decide there's yeah, no punt the there's there's no punting point. the question mm-hmm. that's the bigger point of the earnest follow because we have we have um important decisions that shape and color our lives but it might not be an Ernstfall level. But when I was entering seminary, I had this really profound sense of this is the time, and if I don't go now, I never will. So if I'm going to see you about this now, this is the chance. And so to not choose would have been a choice in that moment, right? That's an Ernstfall moment. Mm-hmm. Um, when when you finally say, yes, I'm going to write the letter to the bishop to ask for ordination to the diaconate. I'm making a, a definitive um, choice and to not do it. So the Ernst fall is like one step above like your normal big choice, mm-hmm. but it is, they are rolling and they are continual and there's more and more moments of it. And I think his argument is at a cultural level, especially for Catholics right now, um, there's not really an option to just say, Oh, I'm Catholic. It's like, I am truly choosing Christ. And if I don't truly choose Christ in a, in a real way, that transforms my life, I'm choosing against Christ because of the crisis of culture right now. Mm. Here's a line he says uh, from the book, Balthazar refers to this choice that will eventually force itself upon us all as the Ernstval, which is the German term that means a moment of existential crisis that imposes on us a choice. So part of the nature of Ernstfall is existential crisis, so I, I don't think the day-to-day conversion necessarily arises out of existential crisis. Maybe it does, um, uh, but no, you can't be in crisis all the time. But but there is. Watch me. You Watch use me. the language. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we do have melancholics in our midst here. So <laughs> I'm not um, one of them. Yeah, sanguine and, crisis is real too. Okay, that is true. I don't. I'm not liked by everybody. I know. I'm a sanguine. <laughs> well, I, I get it. In choosing not to choose for or against God. We acquiesce to the claim that such supernatural provocation are unreal and dangerous illusions and that our most proper home instead is in the safe zone of a bourgeois existence that, quote, buffers us, and he's quoting Charles Taylor here, against any such intrusions of our imminent frame that we take to be the only proper realm of the truly real. There's just a fundamental shift that happens in us. We never would have become priests. Uh, Uncle Larry never would have become a theologian uh, or started a Catholic worker farm were it not for this kind of decisional moment that arises out of crisis. And the the point of the book is to say that the culture has attempted to undergird that, to buffer that, so to speak, um, and to eliminate it. And Sean, to your point, you're already kind of going into this, uh, to make God an unreality by, nullif- by nullifying the, any sense of the divine or supernatural. And so there's this simultaneous move in in modernity that's eclipsing the, as he would call, the Constantinian privileges of a world, of a Christian world that was um, just everybody's Christian, everybody's Catholic. You grew up in the 1950s, and it's just what you do. And this is the world. The baby boomers are on the last fumes of this, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you guys are feeling that in, in the parish, in, in the parochial work. And he's saying, in the midst of that, we have to diagnose the fact that the culture is trying to undermine that, the modern culture, 
is trying to eliminate the decision, the Ernst fall, but also it, providentially God is using that to force Christians to say, you're, you are facing a moment mm-hmm. of crisis. It's no longer possible because you're going to face the consequences, whether you like it or not. So you're either going to decide for or against Christ. Yeah, those first so many hundreds of uh, years of Christianity, you're a persecuted church. Um, at times, this is the, you know, the church of the martyrs where to be a church is really costly, or, or to be a Christian is really costly. It's at the risk of your life and alienation from everyone around you and uh, from society and c- kind of being a cast out by claiming this this life, this life with Christ, this Christianity, being a Catholic. And so there's, there's obviously a long historical gap between the two, but it's, um, it's a different religious atmosphere for sure. And then, and then the world is, um, not only has this sort of, um, well, nullifying effect on, uh, on religion, but itself is trying to eliminate crisis altogether. So he's got these three categories of nullification. One is of crisis, one is of holiness, and one is of prayer. And the one is just, um, we're going to pretend that you can take out all the existential crisis from your life. You never have to ask the question, you know, why do I find myself without meaning? And what could meaning look like? Because it's all kind of whatever you want to make of it and nothing out there anyway. How are you? Fine. Yeah. 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 And it. if we're all, you know, if it's a world that wants to make zombies out of people. Right. And if if you're a zombie, then, you know, you're just floating through and, you know, life is kind of handed to you without any well zombie might be the wrong well it's just, it's just like sleepwalking life is handed to you uh, like brains yeah i know like, okay <laughs> we're gonna get a little too visceral no. um, uh, but you don't you don't have crisis we want to take away crisis well, crisis, crisis can be crisis painful is also scary and can be brain. alienating we don't want anything that could uh set you apart crisis isn't safe so get make you it. uncomfortable yeah so the nullification is um and because crisis also places demand, because crisis brings us to the Ernst fall. So we don't want to be placed in a place of demand. I don't want to have to make a choice. Yeah. So I actually want to eliminate crisis, because I don't want to ever make a choice. Yeah. And so it's taking, it's, it's, um, it's taking away all kinds of uh, framework that leads to decision in life. And we had talked about metaphysics today. I'm not sure I entirely understand that part. You have to explain that to me. But also, like, classic categories within society and politics that are all kind of points of decision. If we can take, take most of the decision out of your life, then you'll be happily numb. And, um, it's just, it's dissatisfying, but it's easy to be lulled into that hot tub. That's yeah. I'm thinking of Pink Floyd here, comfortably numb, right? That's it. And, and that is what, um, the modern world promises. So the first half of the book um, is really about, as you said, these three nullifications of the Ernst fall that they're, they we're not approaching a decisional moment arising out of crisis. Uh, holiness, just as a as an end, as a purpose of life, mm-hmm. that that's been replaced. Um, and then also the the notion of prayer, especially public prayer, and he really kind of goes mm-hmm. into that of the the presence of the Eucharist. And um, so the first half of the book is is dealing with these nullifications, and I, I think it's just. Again, it's it's. I haven't seen a synthesis like this of the questions, you know, of pulling together three big things: modernity, uh, the bourgeois spirit, and then uh, liberalism, as he calls it. And liberalism is not a 
a flavor of politics here. It's the political philosophy of modernity. Um, the bourgeois spirit was my favorite chapter in the book, um, just because I think it really uh, hits on something that we're not realizing, um, mm. namely that we've replaced the pursuit of holiness and and living, taking on the form of Christ who was crucified in love for us. Um, we've replaced that with um, material well-being and affluence and comfort and comfort and and we're all a product of that and he admitted that himself he said i'm a leper among lepers speaking about this but that's really his diagnosis is to think of we're living in a modern world um that's uh, rooted in uh, a notion that human happiness is is found in the most the maximalized um comfort and 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 affluence and well-being and that also that it just has all these kind of presuppositions that are coming out of liberalism, uh, which means that we've redefined what a person is. We've redefined things like human rights and freedom and all these different things. Um, so there's tons in there we can go into, which we won't have time to tonight. But um, Can I say Sean, something? Yeah. On the, oh, Sean, go ahead. I was just going to say, comment on that, because that was probably my favorite chapter too, John. And I, I think that's what nullifies the answer is or the, or the question of like, if I live such a comfortable life that it doesn't... Um, get me out of myself to to think about god or think about transcendence or think about something outside of me i get so focused on right the next pleasurable thing the next car the next wealth the next right uh money pleasure and power that's all i focus on and then i don't need god anymore i have everything i want in this life and this is where i think um you know some of the guys mike you were just on a a silent retreat uh, a couple of our guys uh, just got back from India uh, for kind of service to the poor, a mission trip. Like when you encounter the poor, you realize comfort isn't everything, <laughs> you know? Like sometimes the poorest people in the world are the most happy. Um, not always, but but uh, oftentimes I've found that to be true of like, because they're not pursuing comfort, or at least they don't have the same comforts we have. Like when we live this bourgeois, bourgeois spirit of uh, I need comfort all the time, I need to, to feel affluent, like it, it just renders us incapable, incapable of making um, the the God question, making uh, God a priority in our life. There's a specific take that he that he offered that I really found fascinating about this question of the bourgeois Catholic looking for comfort. I suspect this is judgy, but here we yeah that's me. The uh, the kind of left wing experience of Catholicism, something that might people might call liberal, is uh, it kind of tends toward this. Let's all be nice to each other so that nobody feels uncomfortable. Never offend anybody. Not outside of the church. Not within the church. Not within your community of fellowship. And uh, that Christianity becomes this sort of nice uh, atmosphere. I don't know. Let's make let's make a a world without conflict, a world without consequence, and it's fake. It's just uh, it's a fraud. But there is comfort in that. But it and it it has no chops. It doesn't speak to the world. There's no challenge. There's no challenge outside. Like hey, come be a Christian. But this is this is what's going to change, or this is what it's going to take, or this is the new relationship you're you're entering into. And, and from the inside, it doesn't challenge me to move forward with holiness. I mean, he's going to offer this, this perspective of Christianity that, that is pretty demanding. And uh, the, the comforts from that side are this, uh, just this atmosphere of nice. 
But he sort of surprised me when talking about how there's another side of the, of the church that's increasingly traditionalist and reactionary toward this uh, baby boomer um, trend toward the nice, nice church that doesn't really mean anything anymore. And the traditionalist movement itself right now, this kind of radical movement, is itself a look, is an attempt toward comfort of a bourgeois lifestyle. That is, they're forming an island where you can feel safe, where no one's going to question whether or not you're really hardcore. And if you're setting yourself apart... You know, if you are the 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 model of of Christian, but it's filled with all the trappings of intensity and um, sort of obsession over the uh, liturgical fineries, and um, it it all kind of lends toward this place where I'm not threatened by the world anymore, and I'm not threatened by anything in the, in the church. The, it, but it takes away crisis and it nullifies this uh, problem of God could ask me to do something challenging. God could ask me to do something uncomfortable. I might be called to evangelize my neighbor. I feel much safer just like staying within my hardcore Catholic community. And, uh, but you're, you're creating your own bourgeois society, even on that side, on, even under the pretense of we don't want to fall into that soft kind of nice, nice, nice church. Um, so to see the bourgeois in, in both extremes was uh, interesting. That was kind of new to me, you know, with the, the traditionalist side for sure. I think that's a great insight. He, he, right in the beginning of the book, rejects the binary kind of framework of progressive or traditional. And he just says, this is just, this is just not it because exactly that. Like, I think you really said that well, Mike, um, that... So when we talk about the bourgeois spirit, you know, bougie is one of these words that kind of became popular, and I'm sure that no Gen Zer is using that anymore because the fact that I even know it means that it's probably long past. And you would know yeah, exactly. But this bougie thing is 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 funny, at least when it kind of lasted, because it was describing a kind of um, not just some kind of you know dialectical Marxist word, but actually a way of being and a way of understanding and interpreting reality. And it happens in both progressive and traditionalist Catholic movements, these extremes, as you're saying. And both of them are looking for the same thing. We're looking to escape the cross. And we're looking yeah. to escape the world. Because the cross the, the cross is going to present itself to the Christian now in the world. You know, And so we, we either have to... Uh, the, the progressive thing is we just concede and become the world, which has uh, unfortunately uh, infiltrated the church, and then the other extreme is just like we're out of the world, but both of them are just the it's the run it's the run away because I I don't want it's quo vadis as he ends it right mm. Peter where are you going Peter's leaving uh you know his potential uh, crucifixion in Rome as the, as the tradition goes so I think we're looking at um, the image that comes to mind for me is the corpusless cross that we look and we want we want the ease of resurrection with no crucifixion. And both, I hate using the word sides, but both sides want to exert a control so that there's no crucifixion that really has to happen. And the, so for me, the bourgeois expression is actually an expression of control 
um, which we're talking uh, at a cultural level, mostly about on a political spectrum right now. But it's political control, uh, an exertion of force, so that my system may go into place so that I won't have to suffer. And I see when that enters the church, um, whether it's... Uh, Every, God's done everything, I don't have to worry about anything, or, <laughs> um, you know, the, the corpusless cross, or God's done everything, and, and we just kind of rally behind him um, in, a, in a kind of militant way that creates a system that nullifies my individual engagement with Christ, calling me to a crucifixion moment now. Uh, I think that's the danger, because... In the end, we're selling the church too often as if you follow the church, you will find your greatest happiness, which isn't untrue. But if we don't have a framework for what our ultimate happiness is, that is going to be a siren song of the church is going to make me happy in the here and now at all times. And when it doesn't, I fail. And what chap talks about is the trading for, uh, the ultimate good, substituting it with penultimate goods. And we can do that within the church, even, um, church structures, traditional church structures where you need penultimate ideas of what the church is a, a kind of a imperial, um, conquering church that is ruling over the world. Or we can trade penultimate goods of, my ease, my comfort, wherever it may fall, and I don't actually have to uh, think about the ultimate good, which is, in the end, our corporate union in the body of Christ. Because principally also we're egoists who think about only my salvation. And I'm terrified of not having my salvation. So I've got to find a system that will make sure to assuage my fears of not being safe and secure and saved in eternity. But we're, we're the body of Christ together. And I think that's where kind of his workers' movement, the Marin, the coming together, the community focus um, is really profound. And I should confess, you, you say you don't like the word sides, and I'm with you. I think there's a temptation um, to any extreme um, or, or anything like, yeah, well, maybe these, these two extremes that we've identified, um, that I'm not immune to. It's like, I think most Catholics right now are feeling somehow unmoored, that we're kind of drifting mm. and we're wondering how, like, what is the direction? I want to be a good Catholic. I want to be a holy person. At least these strains have an identity. And uh, yeah. maybe if I follow that pack, then I'll find myself there instead of this kind of vulnerable, um, exposed experience of i have to follow jesus and i have to follow him radically and then and then chap does give like this direction which tends is ends up being cruciformity and um, i mean we'll move at some point in, in that direction did you want to talk about nullification of prayer i didn't know uh if yeah we to. can i uh I, you know i think we'll have to kind of keep an eye on the time here but sean did you have a, a follow-up on that or I didn't, but the nullification of prayer w was under the bourgeois spirit, right? Weren't those the same chapter? 
the bourgeois spirit as a nullification to nullification prayer. of holiness is the bourgeois yeah that's uh, bourgeois. so he pairs three things he number one he pairs modernity and the nullification of the Ernstfall of the the crisis there's no crisis there's the bourgeois spirit and the nullification of holiness and then there's liberalism and the nullification of prayer and specifically as public prayer yep um I think liberalism and modernity, which we haven't talked about as much, um, those are really key and really important. And again, this is just you know initial kind of uh, reflections on, on a, a lot of deep thought and uh, synthesizing a lot of different things that are happening. People are putting their fingers on this, but uh, if I was going to describe it with an, like an antidote and a, just a brief story of those two things, um, several months ago I did a uh, baptism for uh, a marriage a couple that I did their wedding and now they have the first baby and just great, great friends of mine. Um, but I was with the family at uh, brunch afterwards and we were just sitting around talking and we were kind of all bemoaning the, um, the kind of conquest of wokeism in corporate America. And so these are, these are working people uh, who are talking about, you know, just the fact that, you know, you're forced to have pronouns, uh, and you're forced to just embrace, you know, Pride Month and and all of this kind of nonsense that you just that the the total selling out uh, and the soullessness of corporate America that there really are no principles except for like Hobby Lobby and Chick Fil A. God bless them, right? They're just doing it. And my friend's dad said something very interesting um, that I thought elucidated this for me. He said, "I remember working in a world for decades where we didn't talk about a religion and politics." And now, up oh, there's a dog here. Hello, puppy. Oh, hey, Slick. Hi, <laughs> Slick. Um, and he said, now all of a sudden, every corporation has been appropriated by ideology. Mm. And I was like, that's it. You just summarized it. The, pro- the first problem was that we originally were liberal in the sense of we thought that we had this neutral landscape where we don't ever have to talk about religion or politics because they have no bearing on corporate America as they have no bearing on the public realm or the public square. Uh, And it's a, it's a totally privatized reality. Christianity is something that I do at my home and that's fine. And we don't talk about that. And now he, he was reflecting on this and saying that's been lost. And it's like, exactly. And that's the post liberal order. And the moment that we're living in is where that has completely fallen away. But that project originally was deeply systematically problematic um and i i just remember him saying that and i was like wow that you you just accidentally i think put your finger on why you're, you're kind of lamenting the death of liberalism as a structure of economics and politics uh which has failed and is now giving way to just this unbelievably radical and violent ideological movement that is going to force christians right back into martyrdom it's you know it, and not to be kind of super dramatic and uh about it but but there's going to be massive consequences here uh as this kind of unfolds and that's that's the modern liberal project that has collapsed and he really treats that much better than what i just said so i think part of this Ernstfall moment for the church that he's he's addressing is the church in one way or another has been peddling to on the same chessboard as we've talked about before peddling to the same uh concluded end of the liberal project right right and this end of kind of self-manifestation happiness self-awareness uh comfort um kind of within this life that let us build the city of god right um we we do that 
on on both sides of the spectrum kind of wait you don't want our tears to turn into dancing that'd be pretty sweet but now we're getting back into what uh what me and father mike are smoking on our retreats but (laughs) um no i I think (laughs) i think uh we don't smoke on our retreats caveat um or ever Uh, (laughs) the the selling out to a self-centered sense of self-justification and salvation um, when the church is peddling that as what I'm giving you and either follow the rules to get that or do whatever the hell you want to get that we're playing on the wrong chessboard right. and the Ernst fall is Christ is coming and saying that's not what I was saying and that looks to say take up your cross and follow me that's the Ernst fall we're on we're the feast of St. James right now they left their nets immediately and followed him. That's what we're talking about. If if and none of this has made sense, and I've been rambling and critiquing, you know, uh, about a, a a book that could have been shorter, and my responses have been forty five minutes. Now I get to be uh, critical of myself. Um, that's what we're talking about. Well, I th- I liked that you had mentioned earlier that this can be seen as providential. Look at the situ- look at the situation you just described. There was a, a level playing field that was made by the, the liberal thought and politic that was you don't bring your values into the public sphere. You know, you don't talk about politics and religion at dinner with your family, much less in the corporate working world. But now when that those rules have fallen away and you're going to be told what your values are. And those are going to be imposed on you. Like now everybody is, is going to manifest what their values are in, in the public sphere. There's, uh, but you're going to be told what, you know, get in line. You're going to be told what your values are. Then to, to take a stand on, I know I have decided who, what my character will look like, who I believe in, what I believe in, what I'm living for is, um, something that's demanded in a way that I think is like, I, yeah, providential is the right word. It's good. It's good. It's calling. It's calling Christians to to be public, to be threatened, to be uh, bold, and and not. I mean, I don't always like it to be like martyrdom type, but prophetic. I like that he gets into the the language of prophecy. That is, why is this person? In, it, in my work living differently. And I don't think it has to just come down to like woke or not woke. Um, that's an example. And it's a, it's a pertinent one and a relevant one right now. But it's like, why is that life different than the, the others? Why would, why would someone hold different values? Why would someone live a different lifestyle? Why are they going to church? They have every opportunity to go skiing like I do. And they have made a choice that, that seems absurd, but it's provocative. And it, while everything is, is um, kind of at, out of public dialogue, I, you have to keep all of your religion private then, uh, and your values and your interests, your passions, then th- it doesn't, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no witness. There's no prophecy. There's no challenge to the rest of the world. And so it's like God clearing this way or allowing maybe the rest of the world to get so crazy that it becomes a, an atmosphere where a Christian can witness in a profound way, but then is, is invited into this challenge. 
There's the urge fault. You know, there's the crisis is, can I hang when God is inviting me to something that's challenging? It's bold. That's different. You know? I just saw an article that said, uh, are American Catholics truly persecuted? And that was an interesting question to ask because uh, we like to throw the persecution card. But why do we like to throw the persecution card? Because right now the persecuted class is the powerful class. So we actually, are we grasping at power by claiming, oh, we're being persecuted right now? And I like, are, what, what is persecuting us? There's might be some, but I think what Chap's talking about is what in my worldview, my mindset and my expression of Catholicism, am I living in a, a bourgeois Catholicism? Because if that's the case, I'm persecuting myself. I'm persecuting my yeah, true like Catholicism. Um, is it, is it really the outside force or is it my false expression of Catholicism that's actually kind of persecuting the true sense of Catholicism that's and this calling is, out of my soul? This is putting up a mirror to my own compromise. I love his phrase, bored mediocrity. Yeah. Like now I have to face the bored mediocrity of my Christian life. And I can do that as a priest like anybody. Yeah. But um, to be forced with that mirror is uh, scary and delightful. It promises something different, like a future new decisions. And I think that the Ernst fall is not so, I mean, there is kind of a, like Jacob, that's a really interesting insight, which you just said, like there's this temptation to kind of catastrophize the, the cultural moment um, for the sake of control mm-hmm. uh, and, and power, like you're saying, like, and just, and, and we see this in kind of, we, we create these kind of Catholic echo chambers and we just talk about just how insane the world is. Like we're not a part of the world, right? Like we're not in this. And so he, he frames the conversation around Ernstfall of like, no, this is an examination of conscience for the church of like, do we believe in the living God? And Mike, to your point, which is interesting, is like, wokeism is not the problem. It's a symptom mm-hmm. of, of the disease and the dysfunction uh, in the culture. The, the normal thing that we're facing is the nons, the N-O-N-E's, the nuns, right, um, who, for them, the God is an unreality, and the God question is utterly and completely irrelevant to their life. What are they doing? They're on I-70 going up to ski some sweet pow, like we are. We love doing that, right? But they're, they're no longer looking up at the stars, which I'm just struck by the fact that we're doing this under starlight, and there's no sense of transcendence here. It's just this is only self-referentially applied to my desire for an imminent, comfortable life. And if the church keeps conceding to that, saying, hey, wait a second, I know we're not super powerful and not really relevant anymore, but we can help you live a really happy life in this world. If we keep saying that, we're dead. It's it's just absolutely bankrupt. And I I love that he's just hitting that home. Yeah, that... That nullification, it reminded me of a, uh, a recent um, interaction in, at, the, at the cathedral or outside the cathedral where um, somebody asked me, hey, what's that? Why are you wearing all that black and that thing? And I said, well, I'm a priest. I'm a, I'm a Christian. And, and he says, wow, that's cool. I like that hobby. I like to cook. <laughs> I'm like, no, this means everything. This right. means everything and, and to everyone. Right. It's not a hobby. It's not like, I like this, you like that. Uh, but it's that nullification. Like he, he doesn't even register as something. No, oh, yeah. He likes to important. cook. You're really into incense and candles apparently. Yeah, right. right. Um, I think we uh, we could go on and on tonight, but we're already over an hour, so we probably should kind of 
um, start drawing this to the end. We didn't even get to the second half of the book, which is on cruciformity, but I feel like a couple of your guys' comments actually hit into it pretty well. So there's the, the problem, the dilemma, the crisis, and then there's the response. And I think what he, and I, I want to hear your thoughts on this before we kind of start wrapping this thing up, but what he's saying is that the cruciform structure of Christian existence is reemerging the form of Christian life is reemerging in a new way. To, to your point, Mike, the, providen- the providential nature of this Ernst fall is that we're seeing more clearly exactly what we heard in the gospel today for St. James. Right. It shall not be so among you, right? The great ones of the Gentiles make their authority felt, but it shall not be so among you. If you desire to be the first, you must be the servant of all, right? If you desire, to, uh, whatever the, sorry to paraphrase it, but <laughs> you're... Um, the call to embrace the Christ, uh, the cross of Christ, who became a ransom for us, as we we read in in mass this morning. So, so maybe just kind of unpacking any thoughts you have on the second half, very briefly. And I, I apologize that we're running out of time here, but I think this is where the the heroic nature of people in the church have been, um, because they have a crisis in their life, uh, or they see it in the culture, and they say, especially families, they're like, I want to raise my children in an environment where they're 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 going to thrive in the faith and they can actually live the faith well this is where uh kind of islands of humanity pop up where communities and neighborhoods pop up of how do we live the faith in a way that actually is integrated and not just like uh, a part of our life or like this is just a hobby that we do on sunday uh but it's everything for us it's everything and this is where i'm really inspired i have a a young woman in my parish who's going off to a family missions company i'm like that's great like go and give your life to something lay down your life for everything for us uh when our when we laid our life down at the altar when we got uh ordained right your nose hits the marble as we say right that's your death to the self and he uses this word uh canotic love canotic love which means self-emptying that i lose everything because i love god above all things and i'm really inspired by a lot of lay people who i see doing this more and more today. Families who say, I want to go be a missionary uh, as a family. Um, your brother's done this in certain ways, John, of like, uh, if I want to be a youth minister, <laughs> then my wife has to work and she has to have a good job uh, because we're, we, f- we see ourselves on mission in serving the culture, uh, serving God above all things and evangelizing the culture. Well said. Yeah, the, I think one of the primary points that I'm intrigued by is that in this he he offers this canonic spirituality that is jesus emptied himself and um in, in his poverty he became he experienced solidarity with everyone and in in sin and in order to redeem and uh so he uses this image of uh the kenosis the emptying of oneself and uh to be with and then also cruciformity so uh if you you know, I have been crucified with Christ, and now I live. That I, I live, the my Christian life is suffering with Jesus, and um, that can look different in different ages. But what was interesting to me was he was saying, well, the suffering of uh, of Christianity in our day is is not this like who's persecuting me. I feel sorry for myself. It's the challenge of reaching out to a world that has this indifference has already been nullified. So it's in the frustrating experience of in order for me to evangelize that uh, co- the cook, the chef buddy on the street, 
It means I have to spend the next five years becoming friends Mm. with this person and dealing with their, I don't know, whatever, their baggage with religion or their, you know, annoying experiences of, of, of searching in the, in their life or their, their distance from God and from religion. And I want to just let him go and find somebody who's Christian or find somebody who's like, I don't know, to, to, um, to argue with about religion and the sacrifice being specifically, I need to meet people where they're at in a world that's already broken and confused and, and lost and um, and that that's not as as simple as, hey, listen to that podcast. It's I'm going to invest my life in your life at the risk of wasting my life, wasting my time, being unsuccessful in my hopes that you'll um, turn, you know, open yourself to God. You'll encounter God. Is that right? Yeah. Did I read that? I mean, it is. And, that's, that, that's the part. The suffering he, is is essentially the mission of going out to, into the world. Yeah. That's already. So lost of live. I, I think you said it very well of living in the world and sharing in the doubts and the fears, yeah, the Gaudium et Spes, right? The joys, uh, and the hopes, but also the sorrows and the anxieties that people face and, and sharing with them and walking with them in friendship. And I, I know from your guys's experience as priests, like true conversion arises out of the experience of friendship. They, you walk with them and you love them and you spend time with them. You think about the marriage prep couples and the RCA, your discipleship group, Sean. I mean, you just be with them. And there's no there's no guarantees that this is going to take, that they're going to choose Christ, but you're just, you, just, you just have to be with them. And this is precisely what Christ does and invites us to. Um, and so he really does reframe the whole language of evangelization, yeah. that it can't just be a one, two, three, you know, bang, there's the gospel, and everybody just takes it. That just doesn't work anymore. It just has to be this deep kind of, as he talked about, empathetic thinking yeah. of just, I really enter into the heart of this person, and I'm with them in that. And, and there's a cruciform character to that, uh, but also it's it's the most natural human thing that we can do. Yeah, I have to try to, like empathy with this with this woke person who's becoming a friend at at work i actually have to try to figure out what appeals to them in this woke thing i have to try to understand i have to like like empathy is i'm trying to to um to walk in their shoes and instead of i'm trying to fix something and that can be that can be scary like i'm trying to figure out the value of this this thing that i think is absurd and and silly you know to share in those joys and walk you know and I'll have to learn how to cook. <laughs> That's a lot of work. It's my last thought is just situating this in the mind of the church with the Second Vatican Council. And the Second Vatican Council's principal goal was the universal call to holiness, which is an earnest fall moment for the church that every member of the church as a church together actually chooses for Christ. And it's a Christocentric move. Mm-hmm. And so this Christocentric, putting Christ at the center, uh, it's fitting that you know, Larry Chap selected Gaudium et Spes 22 as the name of his blog, because Gaudium et Spes 22 is Jesus Christ reveals fully, reveals man fully to himself. And around this as well, we have man only comes to know himself in a sincere gift of himself. But it's all Christocentric. 
So I first received the gift of Christ into my life. It's a movement of God. It's the external, the God coming forth into the world to give himself fully. And I received that gift, and that grace, that gift, moves me to come to know who I am in Christ. Knowing who I am in Christ, incorporated into his body as the church, I now am able to give myself as gift and in that, I come to know myself. And that's, that's what Vatican II is about. This universal call of holiness, coming to know yourself within the corporate structure of prayer together as the body of Christ because of what Christ has done. Uh, and I think just reflecting on that, I could do probably another week or two of holy hours. So, Yeah. Well said. Well, gents, any final thoughts here? Should we uh, kind of wrap her up? It is about 1030 at night, so we probably... Time to call it. Go look at the stars. Mike and I one time recorded a podcast in Rome, and I think we fell asleep at the end of it. And somebody <laughs> just somebody just reached over in the last seconds of consciousness and hit the stop button, and then I think we completely passed out. Do you remember that? It was, yes, it was, yes. It was like a late Friday. There were a lot of late right ones. Oh yeah, it was a it was a late Friday night. We had been going all day in the library, and uh, it was a very funny moment. So. Uh, Jens, great to be with you. Um, Likewise. And uh, let's do uh, any uh, shout-outs we got here before we close her up. I'd like to shout-out Dr. Larry Chap, Uncle Larry. Wow. Uncle Larry. <laughs> what? Everyone <laughs> Who's at, that? And everyone at DeSales University. I've never been there. I don't even know where it is. But thank you. You have a devotion? St. Francis DeSales, pray for us. Oh, yeah, man. when you grow up, grow up out west, your geography of the East Coast is like like it could be Delaware, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. Totally. Like, uh, where are these states? I thought Ohio was like Midwest. Apparently, that's East Coast, is what people were telling me. Yeah, I don't know any of that. I would like to shout out Dr. Larry Chap, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and also uh, my fellow retreatants. Uh, they, I'm not sure the sisters will listen to this, but Sister Nuncia was on her knees probably 10 hours in the chapel every day and she's like like the ultimate ultimate ascetic um sister ansi was this delightful sister who um works with mission to the zuni people in um in new mexico and uh, helps teach at a school and sister um oh no tau Sister Tao is the funny one. She used to hand sneak chocolates around while everybody's in silence. And when you got a day to talk, she tells you that uh, chocolate is good for your heart and she wants healthy hearts. <laughs> and then uh, Patricia is a, a doctor of uh, psych- clinical psychology in, um, in Arizona. And we walked the 30 days in silence. It's strange how you get to know people even when you're not talking to them. And uh, they were... Uh, great support and uh, beautiful examples um, and uh, it was great to walk that road so thank you for that pilgrimage Very nice. I want to shout out Slick the Golden Retriever Cattle Dog who I'm petting right now <laughs> lives on the property he's been following me around that all day Slick. Uh, I also want to shout out the Totus uh, Tuis team uh, that I worked with last year uh, or last, last, last week. week it is 1030 isn't it <laughs> uh, Jacob, Pedro, Marina and Claire you guys were great um, and I want to shout out all of our Colorado listeners because Father Sean and I <laughs> made some throwaway comment about how nobody in Colorado listens as a joke. Uh, and I don't think I've gotten more feedback on anything than that yeah. comment. And everybody's like, we listen, we listen. Yeah. We got tagged on uh, Strava. I can't remember who 
that was? Scott Fowl. Scott Fowl. Oh, Tiger Scott, yeah. Listening to Catholic Stuff While Biking in Colorado, I think was the title of the ride. So, uh, yes, we thank know you, Scott. you guys listen. You know Scott. We love right? you guys. Yeah, I know Scott. <laughs> Scott Road. Uh, yeah, Scott's a great, he's a great cyclist. So, to our Colorado peeps, yeah. we love you. We know you're there. Yeah, there's the occasional like self sabotage moment on the podcast where, you know, just get a pulse of like, is anybody, is anybody out there? There anybody out there? So Grand thank control the major Tom. I got a. Uh, I was <laughs> texting back and forth the last few days with my buddy, old friend Tim Poquette. Um, you know the Italians have this great phrase. Massimo Kamisaska loves to say, "You don't choose your friends; you find them. You just kind of yeah. end up in life uh, walking with them." And when I showed up at college seminary in 2002, this is my first friend, uh, Tim Poquette. Just a great guy, married man, um, and. Uh, podcast listener so just always grateful for him and edified to to hear from him so thanks tim for listening Blessings, tim. and also larry scott chap shout out to you as well oh, who's um, that? so uh this podcast uh is without larry chap but maybe someday we will uh get get him in person and get him on the podcast how does that sound that'd be great so that'd be great he is just absolutely magnificent and he might exceed the eric gilbaugh extreme two-hour uh podcast length Yes, we almost but, did that ourselves without him. But that would be welcome. So, <laughs> Go get his book. So anyways, boys, uh, wishing uh, all of our listeners a uh, blessed and restful July. Happy Feast of St. James. And uh, thanks for listening. CatholicStuffPodcast at gmail.com. You'll have uh, Jacob and uh, Father, uh, Father Mike I think, coming at you next week. Does that sound right? Awesome. Okay, hey, take care, everybody. Great. Camino. Thank you.